Okay. Josh Smith here again, live from Flat 5 Studio. Today's guest is someone I'm super excited about. Um, it's kind of mind-blowing to me, actually, that I have his phone number, and I can call him up, and we're friends. Sometimes we've played together so much in the last few years, I'll look over and have to pinch myself and realize, wow, that, that is Reese Winans right there. I was honored to be involved in the making of his first solo record, um, this guy is, is a legend, and the call him a friend is amazing. He hails from the great state of Florida, like I do. He was there at the beginning of the Allman Brothers and the Second Coming. Toured with Boz Skaggs, Captain Beyond, Jerry Jeff Walker. Played with Carol King. I mean, come on. Delbert McClinton. All sorts of amazing people. But, of course, you know he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame with his bandmates as a member of Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble. Uh, dude, the amount of music I've listened to with you on it in my life has just been enormous and it's had such an impact on me and it's a pleasure to talk to you and and i hope to share some of your story with everybody so please welcome reese winans hey josh yeah man <laughs> well i'm glad to know you too my friend and uh and uh you know i've always been lucky with guitar players they uh uh, 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 uh other than the ones you mentioned of course i've worked with uh um buddy guy a lot uh, albert albert collins back in the day uh, uh, Otis Rush, uh, made a record with him, uh, uh, and, uh, Dickie Betts, you know, I've, i played some of him and we've, we've all had the, the, uh, honor of working with, uh, Joe Bonamassa. Uh, 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 so, uh, so I, I've been lucky with guitar players. Uh, I like working lucky. with them. They seem to enjoy uh, having me around for some reason. I don't know why, but, uh, uh, I've never been able to play a guitar. <laughs> I've, uh, I've, I've, uh, it's always seemed uh, kind of a mystery to me, but I like playing uh, the organ and the piano. It seems it seemed way more organized, uh, if you pardon the expression, uh, all the notes in a row rather than layered on top of each other. Right, right. Yeah. You just have one stream of consciousness instead of six. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, Reese, I'm curious. I ask everybody about their beginnings. So for me, I'm not from a very musical family. Um, it was really a coincidence that a guitar got placed in my hands, and I'm thankful for it. Um, I know you had piano lessons as a kid, but were your parents musical, or was it just something that they did for the kids to keep them busy? Uh, probably the second thing. Uh, uh, we, they didn't, uh, my mom and dad didn't really like it when we played the radio at home. Uh, uh, they didn't like rock and roll music. They didn't, of course, there was no jazz or blues or even classical music at the house. Uh, my mother liked um, people like Jim Reeves and uh, old fashioned uh, uh, country crooners uh, like uh, Eddie Arnold. Uh, my, my father played piano. Uh, he sort of had a cool um, stride style of piano, but it was and they played sort of schmaltzy stuff too, you know. Just uh, uh, they didn't read music, just just played by ear. And of course, I, I enjoyed listening to him. But uh, uh, by the time I was about eleven or twelve years old, I started working on this piece by Beethoven. I'd been taking lessons at that point for about five or six years. I started working on the Moonlight Sonata uh, by Beethoven, and I thought it was the most beautiful piece of music I'd ever heard and really got me more excited about uh, playing uh, playing classical piano. 
And then my brother took me, not too long after that, my brother took me to see uh, Jerry Lee Lewis uh, at the Bradenton Armory, which was the first rock show I'd ever seen. And so that was my, that was my uh, opening to uh, rock and roll and, uh, and to a, a life of debauchery. <laughs> wow. Wow. And was your, was your brother uh, who took you older than you, I'm assuming? Yeah. Yeah. I had two brothers older than me, uh, seven kids in the family. I was wow. the third. So, so you said you weren't listening to rock and roll in the house. How was he even hearing Jerry? <laughs> he would, he was the rebel of the family. Uh, he played, he, he, he listened to uh, uh, the top 40 station all the time, which was considered a taboo in our house. So we would ride around the car and listen to the radio. <laughs> so is this and it was interesting. Soda? Top 40 was interesting back then, too, because uh, it's probably the same as for you as a kid. Uh, I'm a little bit older than you. But back then, they had people like Pat Boone singing the hits of Little Richard. It, it, you know, it was still the sort of homogenized versions of those great R&B songs of the day. Uh, and uh, it, was, it wasn't until much later that, I, that, I, that we started discovering Little Richard and Sam and Dave and, uh, and the real versions of those songs. And it was like eye-opening. It's like, uh, it like discovering gold or something to, to, to hear what the songs were supposed to sound like, what Fats Domino really sounded like. You know, it was really amazing to us. Was this uh, in Sarasota? Uh, Clearwater and Sarasota is where I grew up. Clearwater and Sarasota, okay. So the teacher that you were going to and working on, Moonlight Sonata, was he a 100% classical guy or would he ever talk about any other kinds of music with you? Yeah, she was, she was just classical, just classical only. And nobody ever talked about anything else. You know, as far as, as, far as my lessons go, none of the teachers I ever had uh, talked about as, as though any other kind of music existed, you know, and uh, so it was really the there was classical, there was a jazz, and that was really the you know the two the two music. There was the, the, nobody ever mentioned Broadway or country or rock, of course, or blues or any other kind of, of genre at all. So, so very much deprived, as a, uh, even though I'm sort of a musical family. Uh, 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 my grandmother played piano in church. My father, like I said, played schmaltzy ballads and, and liked to play uh, stride. And my mother uh, learned a little bit of piano, but she really couldn't play much either. Uh, none of my six brothers and sisters uh, had much um, any, well, they might have had musical talent, but they didn't stay with it. Right. So I'm, so I'm sort of on an island there. So, so when you saw Jerry Lee, did it like knock down the doors? Was it like you know, I mean, I can't imagine what that would be like having not heard much of that music ever, but being a piano player and then seeing that. I, I mean, it must have been. I'll, I'll try to describe it. The, the show was actually on the Fourth of July at the Bradenton Armory. And the place was filled up and uh, it was kind of smoky. And he was standing up there, had the mic between his legs and just playing this wild shit on the piano. Uh, 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 his hair was just flying all over the place. And there was every once in a while, firecrackers would go off in the back 
At one time, he even stopped the band. Just, you cut that shit out back there. <laughs> and it was just, it was crazy, man. And I said, what is this? You know, this is, this is like, I've never seen anything like this. And of course, they, have, they would have uh, local bands play at the Armory, which I would go to see every once in a while. Uh, like the Romans were popular down there. I like them. Uh, they played, uh, had a big song called Miser Lou, which is a guitar favorite. You know, I couldn't re never really learned that one on piano. But, <laughs> but uh, Jerry Lee was, ju was just wild. And there's actually a great live uh, Jerry Lee Lewis record from those days. And you can hear how he starts, starts the song off at a nice clip. And by the end, every song gets faster and faster. And just, it, 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 it's bottled insanity. It's just chaos and beautiful, you know. And of course he was, a, he was an underrated piano player. He actually couldn't play well, you know. Oh yeah, yeah. So I can imagine that lighting a spark like in an insane way. So, so then what happens next? Like, do you search out people to play with to start showing you other things? Uh, is it all picking it out from here? How does how does the ball get rolling? Uh, well, um, I started imitating uh, my father's stride style on piano, you know, just for my own edification, and and I would. I, I, I couldn't get the, the enough of the rock and roll uh, influence in my playing back then. I really couldn't get that. Um, so I, 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 I played a little bit of the stride, worked, learned some ragtime, really uh, liked uh, Dixieland music for a while. And uh, in high school, I joined the lab band, the stage band, and we played uh, sort of big band arrangements. Uh, uh, and so I enjoyed doing that. Um, our our uh, teacher was Andy Wright, who was a real nice jazz piano player. And so I started listening to more, you know, trying, to, trying to work in more jazz stuff into my plan. And all the while, I'm starting to listen to more and more uh, radio and, and uh, recall uh, some songs like uh, Johnny B. Good, Sweet Little Sixteen, with all the great piano stuff. Uh, at the hop by the Danny and the Juniors with a great piano intro uh, and, and sounds like that. And so, so I started saying there is piano in this music, you know, and, and, and the funny thing it Josh is was that I knew exactly what they were playing. I could listen to what they were playing uh, on the radio. And I, I guess from the years of, of playing classical, I could see it and knew exactly what they were doing. I knew what the chords were. I knew the inversions that they were playing. I could play uh, uh, a song like Slow Down. I knew exactly what it was just from hearing it, which was amazing to me to realize, oh, I could play by ear. Yeah. You know, so, so I, I figured out that I could do that. So I joined the lab band and uh, played some of that. And then it, when I went away to college in, uh, at, uh, in Tallahassee, um, uh, I, a friend of mine uh, urged me to play in this triumphant rock band called the Prowlers, and I uh, slow down with one of the songs that we played. Uh, this will be the last time. Uh, uh, oh, I can't think of this. You really got me. Songs like that. Uh, uh, where it was a, uh, what was the song by the Zombies? Uh, She's not there. Yeah. You know. I loved, we played all that stuff and I bought, I had 
purchased a Wurlitzer electric piano and played it all on the Whirly. And it sat, those Whirlies sound great. And it, it sounded great with the guitar, bass, and drums that were already there. Yeah. So was that the first gigging, like not till college, pretty much? Not till college. Wow. Okay. So and then we played. Where was college? Tallahassee. Tallahassee. Florida yeah, State. I played to, to Florida State. Yeah, okay. Cool. And, and uh, we played frat parties and dances at the quad and things like that. Uh, our drummer wore a Beatles wig. Uh, <laughs> there's a picture somewhere. I wish I had it. I, I tried to show you a picture of that band. In fact, I'll try to send it to you. All right. Man, so I assume this is, you know, you're at college. What was your major, by the way? Uh, I wanted to be a music teacher like Andy Wright. I thought he had it going on. So I, uh, I went to uh, Florida State with a major in music education. Uh, I, I, I realized pretty soon that I, I knew everything about music uh, already. I knew all the music theory. Uh, I, knew the, the, I could play the... the, the uh, um, I knew the music history because uh, I've been I've been studying music since since I was five years old. Um, but what I didn't know was how to play rock and roll music. So I'm learning how to do that. Learn how to play soul music. That was really my education. Uh, uh, play, playing in the in the Prowlers was way more important than going to class. And uh, after about the, the first real education class I took wasn't until the third year of, of college. I took one education class and I said, you know what, this is not for me. Wow. Well, what did your parents think as far as like when you went to college, were they cool with the educational path? And then when you split, what did they think? <laughs> when I left college, my mother practically kicked me out of the house. You know, she was so upset. You know, you're ruining your life. You're throwing your life away. And, uh, and of course, I, uh, when I quit college, uh, I had a, a gig with another band, uh, Joe Bill and the Playboys. And I was about 17, 18 years old by then, you know. And now I'm 73 years old. I've worked ever since, ever steady from then until now. You know, uh, I've never really had any vacation or time off. So it's been a, you know, all, overall, you know, playing music has been a good career for me. Yeah, you know, so so she, she she came, but she came around eventually, but it took a while. It yeah yeah I can especially imagine back then, you know, trying to convince you know probably relatively conservative parents what you're gonna do you know with your life. I was lucky that my parents were always so supportive. My grandparents were not the same. You know, they thought it was a huge disaster that I did not go to college. You know, but it worked out. You didn't go at all. No, and I didn't go at all. No. Well, it's not for everybody. And uh, uh, some people, it, it, for, some, for a lot of people, it's a total waste of money. Yeah. Yeah, I felt like I knew what I was going to do already. And unless I was going to be an educator, it just felt like I was better served to start spent. I was already gigging. It's, it felt like, well, I, I should start gigging full time and just get into it now, you know, as opposed to just playing on the weekends or whatever. Yeah. 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 Well, the, the playing the frat parties was wild. I never, you know, uh, uh, there was it was it was just drunken, uh, uh, 
I don't want to say orgies, but just, you know, animal house kind of activities going on at Florida State. And, and you know, the coolest thing uh, was that uh, right across the street from Florida State University is Florida A&M University. And my friend had an inn over there at this club on the campus where they had a soul band. And so I would take my whirly over there and sit in with the soul band. And so that was my really my first uh, uh, glimpse of, of R&B, you know, uh, when, when that was uh, new to all of us back then. And so it really wasn't a, a nice education. Yeah, it sounds like it. So then, you know, obviously you go from band to band, local band, playing gigs, starting to make some money. You realized, obviously, this was your calling and this is what you're going to do. Did you? You're a pretty serious guy. I would assume you treated it that way even back then, like you knew you had to make a living and be responsible. It wasn't just a party. So how did you? How did you approach? You know, finding that the way to be stable. Well, um, I had a great gig right leaving college. I, Joe Bill and the Playboys worked all the time. You know, they uh, they 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 had a regular circuit up through Tampa, Sarasota, Bradenton. Tampa, St. Pete, uh, a, a whole uh, circuit of clubs that we that we'd play, and usually back then the gigs were uh, not one nighters, but a week at a time. Right. And uh, um, so uh, we would uh, we uh, I, I, I worked with Joe Bill for a long time. And I worked with uh, uh, there was a couple other guys that I worked with. Um, my, my one band had a house gig at the bowling alley, so I. Sarasota Lanes, so I played with them for a couple of months. Uh, uh, later on, I, a, a, a friend of mine, a friend of mine's dad had a club, uh, so we, we played. Uh, we played out there with uh, with the Bittersweet, and that was Larry Reinhardt and Ramon uh, and Ramon's girlfriend uh, Tanya was the fire dancer, so we would back her up. Wow, <laughs> dinner and show. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, uh, so, so uh, Sarasota back then. I mean, there was there was in Brighton, There was a, a lot of clubs that had live music. It was really uh, uh, it was really kind of the thing to do is go out and hear a band back in those days. Um, uh, that's where I first saw uh, the Club Mary. That's where the first place I saw uh, Dickie Betts, who is from uh, Sarasota. And he had a band called there, the Gold right? Children, huh? I think he still lives in Sarasota. No, still does. Yeah, yeah. I remember even going to Sarasota to play gigs myself as a kid, and he he showed up once or twice, and I always knew he was in Sarasota. You know, yeah. He was phenomenal as, as even as a young kid. He was it was just uh, well known as the best the best local guitar player uh, around. You know, and uh, we all knew something good was going to happen for Dickie, except he was a little wild. You know, <laughs> he was he was wilder than the rest of us. Wow, well, that's that's held true, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm curious about. I mean, obviously, that's a great story, so we should tell it. But when you start playing with those guys, the Second Coming guys, is is it really Dickie's band, pretty much? Yes. Yeah, the Dickie uh, and Barry Oakley, who had uh, come to Sarasota uh, with the Romans, 
and uh, and then uh, we hired him. He wanted to stay in Sarasota, so we hired him in our band out at the Club Mary. And uh, when Dickie and Rhino, Larry Reinhardt and Barry put this band, they they had this offer from um, um, uh, a guy in Jacksonville to uh, put a band together, make a record. Uh, they all relocated to Jacksonville. I stayed in Sarasota. You know, uh, uh, portent of things to come. You know, they went on to form a band without me. Uh, uh, as it worked out, Dickie's wife, Dale, was playing organ with the band. And uh, she became uh, pregnant with her first child. And uh, <coughs> when it, the due date came along, they wanted, Dickie did, had to keep playing, uh, even though Dale was you know, gone in the hospital. So they asked me to come up and fill in for a while. Mm-hmm. And so uh, uh, I filled in for a while with, with the organ that I had bought and, uh, and my old Whirly. And, uh, and of course, things went pretty well. And when uh, she would, Dale got ready to play again, she became the lead singer and conga player. And I stayed on as the organ player. Wow. And so uh, that was the second coming. And uh, Dickie, uh, Dickie and Dale sang great together. Uh, they did, uh, uh, he did songs like, I Got a Mind to Give Up Living, uh, Born in Chicago. Dale would sing Jefferson Airplane songs and Rhino would do all the Hendrix stuff. You know, uh, uh, so it was, it, was a, it, was a, it was a cover band, but we stretched all the songs out, which was unusual for back then. Right. We were one of the one of the first bands to do that. That you brought up the organ there, and I was going to ask, when's the actual first time you sat down and played an organ? Uh, the first time I remember playing an organ was um, was with uh, Joe Bill and the Playboys. I went and bought it. Uh, I, I knew I wanted it. I'd never really played one. Uh, I purchased a, a Hammond M1, uh, which was the, had the split level, uh, uh, I think it was an M1, Hammond M1, the split level keys, and I bought a Leslie for a thousand bucks and uh, and started carrying it around, uh, put, it, put it up there to the gig and just would play chords on it, you know, and, uh, and uh, it would just kind of, figuring out how to play the, the uh, listening to key organ players at the time. My favorite guy was uh, Ray Masarak of the doors, you know, who actually played in Farfisa. And, uh, but I, <clears throat> so I tried to play the, the Hammond like a Farfisa, you know, and then a lot of the other band had, uh, you know, Booker T had uh, um, uh, green onion. And then, but then the guy I, I discovered, uh, Felix uh, from the Young Rascals, mm-hmm. um, which I can't. Felix Papillardi, yeah, I think Papillardi. was his last name. Yeah. And of course, I love the sound of his B3. And so I started trying to play like Felix. So I was very much playing like other guys, you know. Yeah. To, well, and, and that's how you develop your own thing, is you eventually amalgamate all them, all those styles together and you become you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, 
It's a keyboard is an interesting kind of like guitar. Like you can come up and play piano your whole life and never play organ and learn how to physically handle that that instrument kind of in the way that, you know, I couldn't play a certain style of guitar or seven string guitar. I remember a story about Duke, Duke Jethro with B.B. King, you know, always played organ and on Live at the Regal, he plays piano. And I read an interview where he said, they got there and something was wrong with the organ and they couldn't get anything and all they had was a piano and he'd never played piano on bb's gig and of course that becomes live at the regal the most famous live album of all time you know what a story man that's incredible yeah yeah i mean but when you started to find your your way on organ did you notice that you know not that you got called for more gigs or whatever but that that you started to have like a a new voice maybe uh, yeah, I had a new voice, but, but I wasn't really, I really wasn't very good on it. Mm. And, uh, I'll never forget this guy who was playing with Dickie Betts. Uh, I think his name was Rod, uh, somebody, uh, asked me if I could come, if he could come up and sit in on my B3, on my, on my Hammond, uh, uh, M1. And, uh, and, uh, so I said, sure, sure, yeah, come on up and play. And he was amazing. And he just wiped the floor with me. Just had, had so many great licks he could play. And I hadn't really ever heard anybody play great Hammond uh, in person like that. So, uh, so he was the first guy who was really good. So it really inspired me to become a lot better at it, which I did. Wow. Well, yeah, of course he did. <laughs> so... Okay, so you're playing with... Well, it didn't coming. intimidate me, is what I'm saying. You know, some guys will get intimidated if somebody else is much better than them. Um, to me, it just, it just lit, lit a fire under me, yeah. Yeah. That's the... I mean, I, for me as a kid, those moments were what I lived for. Like, because I was... Not only was I hoping to, to get, you know, not beat up, but hoping to get, like, you know, some sort of constructive criticism all the time because I was playing with older cats... I was also just hoping for that nod of approval. So I would work so hard so that the next week I had improved what I had done previous. To me, that was the, the drug, you know? Well, it, it's, it, that's a totally valid statement. And I, I'll never forget the first guy who came up and said, you're a motherfucker. You know, because I, 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 I never thought I never thought I was. You know, uh, I thought I was just okay. Like, you're a monster. So how did you, how did that happen to you? I said, Oh, I don't know, man. Because uh, uh, I've just been working on it, you know. And uh, uh, thanks a lot. Yeah. And uh, and and you know, it's so. Uh, I don't know what the word is, but uh, fulfilling to realize that uh, uh, some people think you've actually, you know, improved that much. <laughs> and so that was that was uh, you know that was, those are important moments for all of us when that happens. I'm, you know. Uh, yeah. All right, so so then you're playing in Second Coming with Dickie and his wife and, and everything. When do uh, well, when's Dwayne come back to town? I know he's out in L.A. right, and he comes back no, to town. No, he's in, no, he's in Muscle Shoals. Oh, he's Greg is in L.A. Okay, Greg's in L.A. Uh, Dwayne going back and forth from Muscle Shoals to Daytona Beach where he lived, right. and uh, I think Jamo was up in Muscle Shoals with him as well. Okay. I'm not really sure the, the story about Jamo, but but there is a story about Dwayne, who would who would 
come through somehow i'd heard about dicky or he'd heard about the second coming you know we were uh uh playing this psychedelic nightclub in jacksonville and uh and had sort of a reputation as the uh the first psychedelic band in uh florida you know that, that we would take songs and and stretch them out and you know play play so anyway he, he came by the club uh sat in with us and it was the most beautiful thing we'd ever none of us knew who Dwayne was even though he'd he'd spent a lot of his time in Florida as well uh, I'd never heard of the almond joys I'd never heard of the hourglass uh, uh, but uh, hearing him he was immediately our best friend because we, we we none of us had ever heard anything like Dwayne's slide guitar styles and and, and he was one of those guys who could fit in with every song we played. It didn't matter what song we were playing. He had something to play that was perfect in that song. Mm. <coughs> and it's easy to see why he was such a great studio guy. Excuse me a second. Get that voice throat. So he, he would come by more and more often, you know, on the weekends. Uh, he would come by, he would stop in the Thursday and Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday, we would go play free uh, uh, sessions at the, uh, at the park and uh, the other local bands in town would come and join us. It was a big time. And uh, get to, he, he was loving it. Uh, and uh, uh, one of the guys who would come out and play with us on Sunday was Butch Trucks, who was working downtown in Jacksonville. And uh, finally, Dwayne said, my brother and I are putting a band together I want you guys to be in the band. You know, Dickie, Barry, Butch, J-Mo. And uh, then he had a conversation with me. Yeah. Uh, and you can guess what that is. Well, I've got two drummers. I've got two guitar players. I could either have two keyboards or I could have two guitars. And uh, I think I'm going with the two guitars. So, um, you're out. So I was out. <laughs> Man. I'm so, uh, and you know, it hurt my feelings a little bit, but, uh, but I, I, for me, I, I felt like I was lucky to be in the second coming. And, and when Dwayne broke that band up, you know, I, I had a feeling something else was right around the corner. And, uh, and it turned out Dwayne had been recording with this guy muscle shows boss kegs and uh who was putting a band together um and going back to uh, san francisco and i uh, wanted to play out there so uh Dwayne recommended me for that gig so uh, so i relocated to san francisco not too long after uh the almond brothers got started and then they and they moved to macon and i don't know have you read any of the books about Early on, brothers a in Macon. Bit, yeah. yeah, a little bit. It was rough for those guys. I would assume so. Yeah, it seemed like it. Yeah. Two two hotel rooms, no money, yeah. begging for food. You know, just scraping by. Yeah. It was rugged. I, I don't know if I could have. I don't know if I could have done it. I was out there uh, at least making a salary with Boz. You know. Yeah. Uh, uh, and and then continuing my education 
uh, uh, going to see all the great uh, uh, San Francisco bands of the day. And they were talking about the late 60s. So it was bands like uh, The Grateful Dead and uh, uh, Quicksilver Messenger Service, uh, Janis Joplin, uh, uh, It's a Beautiful Day, uh, Dan Hicks and the Hot Licks was out there then. Um, uh, just a couple of them that I could pick up. Jefferson and, uh, Airplane, well, probably, I would assume. Jeff, I, yeah, Jefferson Airplane was there. Uh, um, I, and I got to see a bunch of them. So, uh, so that was quite an education. Was the Boz gig, I mean, obviously it was a good gig for stability and the paycheck and it's good music. Was it any different going from, you know, the bands you'd toured with and played in clubs in Florida to like a, a gig like that? Did, was, did you feel like you'd arrived a little bit? I felt uh, something like that, like I was like I was doing something important. But I'll tell you something else, Josh. They weren't southern. Oh, yeah. You know, there were, it was it was a different thing, and uh, and and I really noticed how different the music is, in regionally in the country. Mm. And uh, so that was eye opening for me. And you know who our drummer was with Boz was uh, George Rain. And I don't that's know if you know who you met him. That's the first time I met George. Wow. And uh, and uh, of course he was a, he's a great drummer. And uh, and Boz was a, a great guy, a great guitar player. And and, and I really liked our band. There's some uh, rare recordings of us playing live somewhere, playing a song too fast. And uh, and uh, then uh, uh, we played the uh, uh, film work a couple times and and all the the local. Uh, San Francisco club, um, and the, and I, I enjoyed it. It was, it was I was having a great time out there. Um, I'd, I'd gotten married in the meantime, and uh, and my wife didn't really like San Francisco too much, so she up and left. You know, she packed it. She said, "I'm, I'm leaving." So I stayed out there for a while by myself, and. Uh, and that's kind of a recipe for trouble, uh, you know, uh, and, and I missed her. So uh, I, I told Boz I, I had to go. I, had to, I quit the band and, 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 and tried to save my marriage and uh, uh, found myself in a show band with some of the, my old Sarasota guys uh, going up and down the coast of the country playing uh, um, uh, you know what a, a show band did back then? It's five sets a night, four dance sets in one show, two shows on the weekend. And then we would play places for three to six weeks at a time. You know, so that's, so that's what that was like. And I learned out our bass player was one of the lead singers. So that's when I, I really got on the left-handed piano bass and uh, playing play the horn chart, the horn horn stabs with my right hand and uh, learn how to play the show band thing. Yeah. yeah. You've probably never been in a show band. Not like that. I mean, I, I've done some, you know, cash, more casual type stuff, top 40 gigs, you know, when I, you know, first, especially when I first moved to LA, but never, never like, like that, you know, like back in the day show band type thing, which, I mean, people wonder why guys get, so good and, and and so versatile well that's why because you were playing so many sets and so many hours of you know of music i mean you can't help but become so you know solid for lack of a better term oh yeah oh yeah at, th at that point 
I, I was I was on fire. You know, I I, I could play anything, yeah. <laughs> and uh, um, uh, and I liked the the, the playing playing the the uh, Chicago songs and the Blood Sweat and Tears songs and uh, and uh, and and all that stuff. It was it was big fun for me. Our, our band was uh, was called Pandemonium, and uh, and we were uh, we made a lot of money, uh, which my wife was happy about that. And uh, and uh, we could you know live in a have a reasonable style of living, and uh, and uh, so that was my that was my life for for two or three years. Uh, I ended up uh, back down in in Bradenton Beach at a house gig. At, the, at a club called the uh, Silver Dollar, the Wreck, the Silver Dollar Bar. And uh, I did a house gig there for about two years. And that takes us up to 1975. Wow. All right. So you're up to, you, meanwhile, with Boz, uh, did you ever leave the country with Boz or was it all in the States? No, all in the States. We went to Hawaii once, but, uh, but basically in the States. When's the first time? Basically, basically in San Francisco. You know, we never really... We didn't really go on tour. Wow! You know, he he was just playing the local clubs, kind of getting his own thing together. He had just <clears throat> left the Steve Miller band and was kind of getting his own thing together. When's and the we first were playing time you left all the, the states. The first time I left the states. Well, let me think. Um, Jerry Jeff Walker just played in America. Delbert did a lot of shows in Canada, so uh, when I when I uh, was working with him in the eighties, uh, of course we did we did all the Canadian shows. When I joined Stevie in eighty five, our first show was in Dallas. The second show was, uh, I think it was Milwaukee Fest or Chicago Fest. Third show was Montreux. So that's the really the first time. Oh, well, wait a minute. The, the, I had actually gone to Europe. I had been to Europe with Carol King ah. in the uh, in the uh, early '80s. All right. Yeah. We had made a. I'd made three records with her in Austin, and uh, one of them's called "Touch the Sky," mm -hmm. and another one was called "Pearls," which was a remake of of, of songs that other of hers that other people had recorded. And uh, the third one was called One to One. And then we did a little uh, sort of a quick tour of Europe, probably three weeks, you know, uh, played Paris, <coughs> London, uh, Stockholm, um, uh, you know, places like that. Uh, mostly, mostly nice theaters and things like that. She was very well received. Yeah. yeah I, well, I can imagine. Wow. All right. So that was your first European travel then. Yeah. Wow, amazing. All right, so let's jump back. 75. I'm assuming that's what, uh, Captain Beyond coming up or or Jerry Jeff? No, I, I, I actually skipped over Captain Beyond. It was a, a short-lived episode, probably about 73, where uh, I had left uh, the show band uh, and ran into Rhino in Atlanta. And he was going out to uh, San Francisco to record. Did I want to come out there with him? And I said, sure, I do. 
And so, not realizing how messed up uh, Captain Beyond's situation was at that time. Their first record, I just loved it. And so I thought it was gonna be more of that. Mm. Uh, but it was it was different than that. And so we, we, we went to the, uh, uh, what was the name of the studio? This, uh, um, I'll think of it, uh, the place in Sausalito. Uh, yes. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, we made uh, uh, Sufficiently Breathless, which we all called Eat Some Fish for Breakfast. Uh, <laughs> And uh, our lead singer was Rod Evans, who was with uh, Deep Purple. Uh, bass player, of course, was uh, Lee Dorman from the Iron Butterfly. And uh, uh, Rhino, my friend from Sarasota, was the guitar player. And, uh, and we had a, uh, a drummer from Miami uh, named Manny and a, and a percussionist named Gia. I think he was also from Miami. And uh, so we spent probably six weeks and that's basically living in the studio, making that record. What a chore it was. And uh, it, was, it was kind of like trying to find the, the time when people were high, but not too high. And, uh, and when you could just get that right, the track going at the right time, because if you waited too long, then you would, it was diminishing returns. And, uh, and it was it was basically it was it was a pretty bad situation. Uh, I thought the record came out about as good as it could have, <laughs> considering all that. And uh, I actually went after the record was done. I went down to L.A. with them for for uh, uh, about a month and a half. Uh, they would talk about they had they were going to do some press and uh, and do some gigs. And we did one gig and. Uh, and uh, I had to go. I mean, I, I just, it, it, I, I needed, I needed more. I, I loved LA, but I, I had, we didn't have any money. I wasn't really doing LA the way I wanted to do LA. Sure. So I went back to Florida and uh, eventually joined, uh, I moved to uh, my, my marriage. It split up. I divorced my first wife and moved to Austin. And that's when I joined the Jerry Jeff uh, 75. Did you have the gig already when you moved to Austin? Were you moving to Austin just to move to Austin like Leap of Faith? No, I had the gig already. A yeah. friend of mine, another great guitar player, lives here in uh, Nashville now. I don't know if you know him or not. His name is Dave Perkins. Uh, if, you, if you should uh, uh, Google Dave Perkins, and you'll hear some, some nice guitar playing. Uh, Dave was uh, uh, playing with Vassar Clements, who was opening for jerry jeff walker and a los gonzo band and uh dave would come out and sit in on their encore well jerry jeff had had a falling out with the los gonzo band i think it's over money i think there was uh a punch to the nose by the piano player to jerry jeff and uh and uh eventually and, and a quick firing of the los gonzo band and jerry jeff turned to dave to put a band together for him Dave, uh, Dave is a friend of mine. I'd uh, done some recording of his original songs um, in Florida. And uh, so Dave called me, do I want to come and be in the church if I And uh, I said, well, let me check it out. 
So I went out to Austin. And of course, Austin was wild back then. Uh, the, 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 the country music scene, Willie Nelson was just getting super popular. Jerry Jeff Walker was a big star in Texas. And, I've, and little did I know, a big star all over the country. We played, we headlined shows all over America. I didn't even know he was a headliner, but the idea of moving to Austin and, uh, and playing this music appealed to me. I'd never really played country music. And I, it was sort of country folk music. That's what it was. And, uh, and it was fun. Yeah. We, had a, we had a good band, a uh, great bunch of guys. Uh, our, bass, our, our old bass player from that band recently sent me uh, a great uh, 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 retrospective of movies, videos that he'd taken with, it, with, a, with, a, with an old camera from back yeah. in those days. And of course, you know, we all miss uh, Jerry Jeff. He just passed not too long ago. And, uh, and uh, it hit me a little harder than I thought it would. Uh, he, he, he was uh, he was a uh, he was quite a character, and we had a wild time playing together. I bet, I bet, and a lot of good music, man. So that move to Austin ended up being incredibly fertile for you. You ended up gig, 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 gig. I mean, obviously, you never know how things are going to work out. But it was like you said. I mean, I wasn't there, but I know the scene seems when I read about it just to be huge there at that moment. So much music, so many new bands coming to town and starting things and starting to have success. Uh, did it feel that way? Like when you moved there, like there was just so much going on. Yes, yes. This was totally unlike Florida, which was all about. Um, Florida was uh, Florida club bands were all about cover bands. Mm. You know, out in out in Austin, it was all original music, yeah. and uh, oh, this is great! And uh, and uh, so being with Jerry Jeff Walker, uh, that was a, a prestigious gig. You know, I got set, I was doing sessions with uh, uh, all of the other uh, uh, country uh, country artists out there, yeah. and uh, and everybody, uh, uh, and that's where that's where we ran into uh, Carol King who wanted to record with the Jerry Jeff Walker band. Uh, but there was this other thing that was going on out there that was, it was kind of new to me. And that's the blues thing. Right. And so I started hanging out over at Antone's and, uh, and, and the blues guys did, out there didn't really hang out with the country guys much. It was sort of a two different things. Mm. And, uh, and I, I found myself really liking what the blues guys were doing. And the country guys were all great. I mean, I loved Ray Wiley Hubbard. I love, uh, I loved uh, 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 Steve Fromholtz and uh, and uh, and all 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 of the other uh, uh, Jimmy Dale Gilmore and uh, and uh, uh, shoot, uh, I can't even think of the other guys. Uh, uh, Joe Ely. Uh, and there were, I mean, there was so much talent there. And of course, this is not even talking about Willie Nelson and his studio. Who I would go, I would go out and, and, and do records at his place all the time, and uh, and uh, got to know him some and all his band, and they were great. So yeah, I, uh, once again, I was in the around uh, uh, not once again. I mean, I guess San Francisco was the center of music. Uh, Jacksonville was the center of music. Austin, Texas, was the center of music, the center of live music, and I couldn't get enough of it. I said, so this is the best thing I've ever done is go to Austin. Wow. 
Yeah, I mean, and you got to play, like you said, so you start hearing the blues guys, and obviously they took blues really serious. You know, there was a groundswell of, like, you know, traditional rebirth of blues and, and respect, and all the original guys were going into town to play at Antone's. Clifford was bringing all the real guys there. So, I mean, I can't imagine being in those two worlds and that scene. Plus, everybody seemed to just be so... Uh, not studious, but so serious about being great and loving music. You know, that, that's inspiring. Well, and, and uh, uh, you know who was the drummer, the main drummer at Anton's uh, house band was George Raines. George Raines, yeah, yeah. And so George couldn't believe it when, uh, when I started hanging out there at Anton's. He said, what are you doing here? He didn't, know, he didn't, he didn't even know I was in town. So, uh, so uh, I started, you know, renewed acquaintances with George and uh and uh, he was he was pissed off at me for quitting Boz's band but but he got over it yeah you know he introduced me to Derek O'Brien and uh uh um Denny uh, uh Freeman and uh and uh and uh Mel Brown who was the uh, uh organist in the Anton's house band yeah. and so I would I would go to the Anton's every night and watch the band and Late at night, you know, about the last set, the last couple songs, Mel would finally get tired, or he would he would either go strap on the guitar and play a couple songs, or he would just get tired and take a break. That was my chance to go jump up on the organ and play with the Anton's house band, which I loved doing that. So, um, so that it, it was it was uh, it just got to be uh, a big fun and. And, and that, that's how things worked out, you know. Uh, yeah. uh, the T-Birds had a house gig across town at the Rome Inn. I would go see them on Monday. Uh, uh, you know, there was there was all kinds of studios there doing country sessions, doing blues sessions. Yeah. Uh, uh, Jerry Jeff Walker was going on the road. Uh, I was, uh, uh, you know, I was doing doing everything. It was a it was the perfect time for me. It was just a great time. Yeah. Where do you meet Delbert the first time? Well, uh, uh, Del uh, Delbert opened shows for us wow. uh, for Jerry Jeff Walker, and uh, and I started listening to that, listening to his band, and he was really good. And he, I don't know, a young Delbert, you know, could sing. I mean, old Delbert could sing too, but uh, young Delbert was a force to be reckoned with. He was one of the best honky tonk singers. In history, you know, he was he was really phenomenal, especially in a club. He was just a, and it's just a, you know, I loved. It was like Jimmy Hall, you know, working the working the room. He was yeah. that guy, and uh, so I loved it. And, and I finally decided, you know, Jerry Jeff, uh, Dave had quit the band. Uh, the, if you're moving on to about 1980, Dave Dave Perkins had quit the band. Uh, the band was still good, but I was getting drawn towards the blues. Yeah. You know, I knew, I knew it was just happening. I knew it was happening. Nobody, nobody's fault. And so I, 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 I uh, talked to Delbert. They were looking for a piano player. Their guy had just left. So I, I quit Jerry Jeff and uh, joined, uh, joined Delbert. It's a man. It's it's amazing how things just line up, you know. And you go from gig to gig, and 
you're also just growing as a musician with every gig like you said now you're you're getting into blues and delbert couldn't have been a more perfect gig to straddle the line between all those kinds of music you know it's almost it's almost too easy josh it's just just lay it at my feet here do you want to do this uh yeah <laughs> oh man no and, but of course the thing is josh you know we could see how easy it is but you know a door can open for you but you have to walk through the door and you have to bring something through the door with you your talent with you that is something that's that appeals to somebody else you have to you have to have worked and uh, and uh, and uh, hard enough to where you have something to offer people so you know for me i would uh you know to get offered a gig working with delbert i don't sing you know i play piano i play organ but i but i play it with a fire you know and uh, and, uh everybody doesn't do that uh uh I, in those days today delbert's band is a big band he has a horn section uh uh um you know, a, a complete rhythm section. Uh, uh, back in those days, it was a five-piece band, uh-huh. and uh, and so we we just tore it up. We would we, from from Tipitina's to Kane's Ballroom, the Cotillion Ballroom, uh, all the dance halls across the country. Uh, it was just amazing. It was it was it was just an incredible time. And I'd never done that before. I'd never toured with a blues band. And I was having the time of my life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's nothing like that, you know, just a, a tight band playing clubs on the road over and over all across America. That's, that's kind of the best thing in the world. Yeah, our guitar player was Billy Sanders, who's a guy who had a, wore a great big cowboy hat and was just the greatest guy. And, our, and we had a, a rhythm guitar player was James Pennebecker, which you may know James. Yeah. So it was, it was a really good band. Well, I mean, obviously, you play with that. So that kind of brings us to Stevie, right? Del, the Stevie happens right after Delbert. Right. Uh, I, so, I had, I had actually, I toured with Delbert for five years. Yeah. You know, uh, uh, I, I had gotten married again uh, right at the right at the beginning of uh, the Delbert days, and uh, by the end of my time with Delbert. It was it was falling apart, um, you know. Uh, I was uh, didn't think I could stay on the road and stay married. Uh, it just wasn't going to work. So I gave Delbert my notice to mm-hmm. go home and try to work things out, uh, uh, see if see if see if our marriage could be saved. Mm-hmm. But this the way things work out, yeah. you know. So the by the last night. The last show uh, of the the last tour with Delbert, uh, our sax player, Ghost Sublette, who's a great sax player, lives in LA now, uh, uh, says he's doing a gig with uh, across town after the the last gig. They were looking for a piano player. Did I want to go do it? And I said, well, I don't know. It's kind of late, Joe. And I was going to drive to Austin tonight. I said, well, it's with uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble. We're going to go over and just do one song, and then you can still still make the drive. Uh, and uh, I had met 
uh, I, I had seen Chris Layton. I think I would said hello to him at one time. I'd never met Tommy. I had never met Stevie. Really? You'd never met Stevie? So you'd seen like the T-Birds and stuff around town, but you'd never actually met Stevie yet until then? Never talked. I, I met Jimmy, but I hadn't really talked to him very much. Uh, I'd seen Stevie sit in, but I'd never really talked to him. You know, because I didn't know him. Nobody introduced me to him. Yeah. So uh, I just I didn't go up to him. Uh, but uh, I I went to to hear the the uh, the Double Trouble as the trio at the uh, Continental Club uh, one time. Couldn't get in. It was so crowded. I couldn't get in. I went to see uh, the Triple Threat Review out of Sub Freak and thought that was pretty pretty slam. And that was that was pretty rocking. But I could I couldn't stay. I had to I had to. Uh, get out of there and go do something. So uh, I, I, once again, I didn't get to meet them. So, but they, but they knew who I was. I got as soon as they knew me, and uh, and I and I knew who they were. Uh, we had one song to do was to look at Little Sister, the Hank Ballard shuffle that he had recorded before, but he wanted to do it this time with piano and saxophone. So we got over to the studio. Uh, he had the whole his whole rig set up like a live performance in the studio, mm -hmm. the PA and everything. PA we walked in there, we started, it was so loud. I was, I had a, I had the piano in a separate room, closed off for the rest of the studio. I could not hear the piano while I was playing the song. I had, <laughs> Joe couldn't hear himself while he was playing. So we played along and then uh, they'd got the track and then we went back in and 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 overdubbed uh, our stuff to it, mm. <laughs> and um, it sounded great. And, jo and Stevie was happy with it. And Joe took off, but Stevie asked me, "Did I want to play another song?" And uh, I, if I'm not mistaken, the second song we played was called "Soul to Soul." Mm. You know, was the title of the record, and uh, and so he wanted to get a. Uh, uh, kind of rainy day feel, like a Hendrixy feel on uh, on it uh, on the shelf. So, yeah, man, yeah, I'd love to do it. And I had, I don't know if they had ever really they had heard me play B three before, but the B three with the with Stevie, Tommy, and Chris just really seemed to add something. It really it, more than the piano. It just it was just this bread and butter that was there and it kind of set the table a little bit. They really liked the way that turned out. It gave me a solo on there, uh, which was in B, not my favorite key, but uh, yeah, I know. You, know, you do what you can do. Uh, <laughs> and uh, they asked me, do I, I want to do another song? And uh, so we did uh, uh, You Can't Change It, which I, I love that song. And the B3 really helped that song. You know, it needed the pad there. And uh, uh, so by that time, it was about six o'clock in the morning, too late to drive back to Austin. And so they asked me, did I want to stay over and come back in the next day and, uh, and do this again? I went back the next day. We got three more songs. So in two days, we had six master keeper tracks. Wow. <laughs> so that night they asked me, did I want to join the band? Just like that, two days. Just like that, yeah. yeah. Unreal. Yeah, they were looking for, to make it, to, to do something different. 
with a band at, at uh, Meta Trio. And uh, their manager, or no, they originally asked Derek O'Brien if he wanted to come and, and be a support guitar player, which would have worked out great. But the manager didn't want another guitar player on the stage with Stevie. So they wanted a, they wanted a keyboard. So uh, once again, in the right place at the right time. Unreal. Unreal. So how much longer was the recording of that record? How many more days? Uh, we did those two nights. We got the six songs. And my recollection is, damn here, Josh. I want to say it couldn't have been more than a week. You know, been four or five more days. Uh, I don't. I don't really remember the rest of the recording. It went by in a haze. Did um, you overdub on anything they'd already done before you got there? No. 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 Everything else. Everything else. In, in my recollection, everything else were live takes. And uh, uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, they asked me to join the band. I had to make the decision right away. And you they were, were just deciding to come off the road to save your marriage. Right. Right. So what a dilemma. <laughs> so uh, so I, I went home uh, after the after after the tracking and uh, and uh, just had to had some difficult conversations yeah. and, uh, and decided that it's, it's, it's just, this is the best thing that's ever been offered to me. I can't say no. And uh, what do you think, honey? You think this will work out? Says, oh yeah, go ahead, go back on the road. It'll be great. Yeah. And, uh, and so it wasn't so great, but uh, we ended we ended up divorcing. Yeah. Uh, but uh my time with Stevie was time, time I'll always treasure. I'm assume, assuming it was like a blur. I mean, because, you know, it goes by so fast, but you're doing so much, so many gigs, so many amazing things, records, all that stuff. But then next thing you know, it's over. I'm curious, I mean, not to get too deep or anything like that. Did you have an inkling? I don't know. You you know, you don't strike me as a very party guy, but did you have an inkling, obviously, when you stepped into the studio of what what kind of situation you were stepping into? Well, I was uh, I was concerned with drug use. Uh, 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 I had been around uh, other people that were heavily into drugs uh, before this. Uh, uh, not to mention any any names, but uh, but I, I was well aware of how how things can get out of hand. Uh, myself. I was always sort of a casual drug user. Uh, if they, if, if, if my bit, little bit of cocaine ran out, that was fine. You know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get somebody to FedEx me an eight ball so I could stay up for four more days. I'm not gonna do that. You know, I'll, I'll go to bed and uh, and uh, uh, come back tomorrow and and we'll see what happens tomorrow. You know. Uh, um, um, I was different than in that matter, in that regard. I was different than uh, some of the other guys in Double Trouble, uh, who wanted to keep the party going. Um, and uh, I was, I was, uh, I, I, I became, had started to be after a year or so into the band. I started to become a little, become more concerned that uh, this was 
this could spiral and uh, and really not be good. And I was glad when Stevie decided to go to rehab and uh, and uh, sober up. I was happy about that. I mean, it, I, I, I was sorry to see him go down that hole, you know, go down that, that spiral where uh, you have to hit bottom. And then, you know, that's never pleasant. Yeah. But he came out of that uh, terrifically and, uh, and uh, was a much happier guy. Well, that's amazing to me from, you know, obviously he's one of my biggest heroes and I was had my period of obsession you know where I was watching every bootleg I could and reading every interview and everything and what always struck me after 87 you know when he was clean was just yeah how happy he seemed in every interview and everything and it, it obviously makes it even more depressing <laughs> what what happened but uh you know I, yeah it seemed like you guys were just living I remember seeing an interview where it was just uh, Chris and Stevie being interviewed on TV somewhere. I had it on a bootleg and they asked Chris and Stevie, what would be the best thing that could happen for your band right now in career? And they both just smiled and were like, just keep going. This is awesome. You know? And I, it seemed like that he knew how great it was after he cleaned up. Well, the thing that happened after he, when he cleaned up is the anger disappeared along with the party disappeared. And I have to tell you, I was concerned, you know, about the anger being gone, you know, and, and it's, I mean, that's a good thing, right? But I hope you're not taking all your anger, your fire out of your playing. And uh, and we went in to cut that 10th step and and it was, it, we had to play the songs over and over and over again to get takes. Mm. And was, we'd, we'd play a lot of these songs, he'd, he'd stop it and we'd start again, play, play again. And uh, he wasn't messing up or anything like that, but he just was, <coughs> he wasn't angry, he wasn't angry, but he was driven to make it, make it the best thing he's ever done. Mm. Yeah. And uh, so the, the being driven, Took it took over the spot where there was some anger before. I thought it was so. Um, we uh, the the shows were were just unbelievable. Even even before he sobered up, after he sobered up, uh, every song it seems like it was just hit one high point after another. It was just uh, it was just the most amazing thing to be on stage during that, and uh, and you felt like nothing you could do could go wrong you know this was all this was all exactly the way it should be and i mean i felt at the time like uh we were leading the pack as far as the blues rock people of the day we would we could play jazz festivals pop festivals uh, uh blues festivals uh, uh tv shows uh, uh, uh all kinds of bands wanted us to to uh, open shows for them, and yeah. and uh, uh, I mean, we were just in demand as the thing. Uh, uh, the and it, it felt like the best thing ever, you know. And then this would this would uh, continue. We, we would make records for uh, decades after this, and it would just it would just evolve and and mature. And uh, and uh, 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 you know, it's just uh, 
uh, like I said, the time of my life. So, uh, so I, I've been so I was so lucky to have been in that situation, <clears throat> and uh, I'll never forget it. In the midst of it, when it's going on, are, is the feeling like as special as uh, while it's going on as it is? I mean, because now it's like you know Stevie and the, and you guys are you know it's become a legendary thing. At the time, it's like you're having success, and it's it's amazing. But did it feel more like you know, like you've been in other bands, maybe not on that same high peak, but other big bands? Did it just feel like that, or did you know it was special then? No, uh, we knew there was something there was something unique going on with this. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and the the four of us just uh, uh, felt had the, had the brotherhood thing going. Uh, where we, we talked about the music and we wanted, we, we really were, were all driven to make the music right. And, uh, and we would listen to board mixes of the show after the show on the bus and critique it. And what can we do to make it better? You know, this part, this part, you know? And uh, 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 so uh, after that, we would watch videos of uh, Hubert Sumlin or Muddy Waters or, or Freddie King or, uh, you know, and so we were, we were completely ate up with the music. We couldn't get enough of it. We, 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 we were just driven to make ourselves the best we could be and to, to uh, uh, not only look, look ahead, but to look back and remember the roots, where, this, where this, all this blues had come from, where, where, what are we gonna, where are we gonna take it? And, uh, and uh, so, so it felt special. That's amazing, man! Wow, I mean, I I, yeah, I didn't feel, I didn't feel like that with Delbert. I didn't feel like that with Jerry Jeff Walker, you know, or Boz Kags. You know, those were they were just sort of convenient bands that that, that that I was having a blast with, and and but this was like the culmination of of for me of my life at that time. Yeah. Well, I mean, so when when unfortunately Stevie passes away. Obviously, there's probably a period of just you know besides the shock, of like you said, you you've already in your mind planned out the next decades of your life in this band and and all the special things you guys are gonna do. Personally, for you, just as like a, a musician with responsibilities and as a grown adult, when did it start to hit you like you know you need to start thinking about what's what's next for you? It had to be incredibly surreal. I can't. I mean, I can't relate to that at all. Well, the fact, the, the, the strange, strangest of it is, uh, after, after Stevie got killed, we all went home and um, Austin was just bizarre uh, to me. I would go around to Antone's and to the other clubs and I felt like I didn't need to be there. I didn't. I, I shouldn't be there, you know. And uh, so, uh, uh, at the same time, my second marriage uh, was was breaking up, and uh, so I, I'm really feeling incredibly alone, you know. And I uh, don't know what what I'm gonna do. Uh, Joe Ely came along and offered me a tour. Did I want a tour with him for about a year? With this other great guitar player, Ian Moore, uh, and that was a good band. 
uh, uh, but we, uh, with that, with, so with Joe Ely, we had uh, come to Nashville to record the, uh, Love and Danger with uh, Tony Brown. And um, uh, Tony really liked me. He was talk, trying to talk me into moving to Nashville. And I uh, said, we, you come up here, Reese, you'll be making six figures. You'll be doing sessions all the time. It'll be great. And this was like 92, which was really, or 91, which was really a heyday of, of country. Uh, things were going great in Nashville at that time. And uh, so I toured with Joe. A uh, friend of mine, when that was over, a friend of mine offered me a gig in Nashville with Hal Ketchum. Um, my divorce was final. I didn't really want to be in Austin anymore. It felt weird. It just felt weird. Uh, my ex-wife lived down the street from me with her new boyfriend. Uh, uh, you know, uh, just felt weird. So I thought I'd, I'd, I'd try the gig out with Hal. I'm back to playing country music again. Moved to, Na moved to Nashville. Uh, after two weeks in Nashville, uh, coming home from a gig one night, uh, I got mugged at the uh, Shoney's Big Boy, uh, 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 Shoney's Motor Inn downtown. Uh, so welcome to Nashville. Wow. Uh, <laughs> uh, about... A month after that, Hal fired me. Oh man! So, uh, for what reason? There was no reason. You know, the day, the day before he fired me, he was telling me, telling, telling us all how much he loved the band, and that he wanted to do a double record. You know, a double a live record. Then the next day, uh, the manager calls and says, uh, uh, "Sorry, Reese, but uh, yeah." you have to we're, we're uh well uh we're paying we're paying you was monday so we'll pay your hotel room until friday and you're on your own oh man Jeez. so uh i what i did is i i contacted uh uh an old friend of mine leroy parnell who i knew from austin and uh he had, a, he had a good band together and they were touring. And I told him uh, uh, what had happened and what, uh, you know, what, the, what, what was going on. And he said, let me see what I can do. And I, and I had some other people that I knew here in town. I knew Mike Henderson, who played a, a local gig out at the Bluebird. And I went to see him, you know, to ask him if he, had, if he knew anybody. And I, I knew things would come along. I wasn't hearing anything from uh, as far as sessions coming my way. You know, so, so it had to be a touring gig. Uh, eventually, uh, Leroy called, said he fired his piano player and I could, could I come and do it? And so that, so he kind of uh, helped, really helped me out of that in a, when I was in a bind. Wow. And I uh, toured with him for a couple of years and uh, uh, we made a bunch, of, a bunch of good records with Leroy. He had, <coughs> let's see, at least two number ones maybe three number ones and uh, uh, never really got over to the being a, a, a headliner act, but, uh, but I had a lot of fans and, and we had James Pennebecker was our, uh, was our guitar player. And so uh, it was nice to work with James again. Yeah. Uh, Steve Mackey played bass, Lynn Williams played drums, bunch of great, uh, really a great bunch of guys. And uh, 
uh, I really enjoyed working with them. After, after uh, uh, about two years of that, I basically retired from the road. I started getting sessions, yeah. you know, and, uh, and this was about 95 or 96. Uh, I started doing, working a lot with uh, uh, Brooks and Dunn. I made uh, four or five records with them. Um, and then I became sort of uh, an in-demand guy in that show yeah. and stayed busy for, for probably a decade after that, yeah. you know, up until about 2011, I was uh, getting uh, plenty of studio work. And uh, so I, I, I just decided to stay here in town and, uh, and uh, enjoy my kids growing up and, uh, and uh, living at, living in Nashville. Yeah. I mean, it, what, what did you think when, when the pivot was, you know, all of a sudden you were like a full-time session guy? Was it, you know, did it feel different to you? Did you enjoy it? Obviously you probably grew to enjoy it, but at first was it weird? Well, you know, I had had some experience playing country music, mm -hmm. but the country music that I played with uh, Jerry Jeff Walker was a lot different than the country music they were playing up here in Nashville. Yeah, and uh, boot scoot and boogie, way different. <laughs> way different, Josh. And you know, and I don't want to say there's anything wrong with the country music here in Nashville. You know, they do seem to be hung up on this play it perfect thing. You know, and uh, uh, rather than let's get a feel going or play ain't play anything unique, uh, but uh, you learn the ins and outs of that and uh and you learn how to play perfect which which was easy for me i could do that i just had to pull off on my creativity somewhat you know and uh and uh and then play play it start safe and then come up with uh, something cool around that you know which, uh you know use your taste so uh, you know, instead of uh, filling up uh, everything with uh, with chops, you know, just use your taste, and uh, and uh, so that was so it's part of once again part of my education. So I learned a lot being a studio musician. Yeah. And there's some fantastic musicians here in Nashville. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Man, it's it's kind of I mean when you look at the breadth of of your story, it's pretty pretty unbelievable. You know, all the things you've jumped through. You know, and then that brings us to obviously you start playing with Joe, but then you finally do your first solo record. And I, I mean, when Joe called me and asked me to even just be a part of it, I, I was like, man, I was so excited. And I know you you didn't know, you know, who I even was probably coming in there, even though we'd met once or twice around Joe. But, man, it was such a thrill for me to be in that room and to see you, you know, working on your first thing with your name on it. I'm I'm super proud of that record, man, and I think you should be. It's it's so good. I had a great time making that, Josh. And uh, let me just tell you that uh, uh, Joe had never produced a record before that. Yeah. And you were absolutely MVP coming in and doing the work that you did. Thank you. On that, but uh, from the first day when we got Tommy and Chris in the studio. And, uh, and of course, Kenny Wayne Shepard was there too, mm -hmm. uh, playing uh, uh, incredible guitar stuff. 
And uh, I forgot to mention playing, uh, we did a couple of Kenny Wayne Shepherd records with uh, Double Trouble back in the late 90s. Well, there was and a so, period there where, and this, you know, where you were doing all the buddy guys and, you know, every blues record on Silvertone or co all those records. Yeah, I could, I remember getting them and always seeing Reese Wine. What is it with the, uh, I'm so lucky with the guitar players, man. I don't, I don't know what, what it is, but it's, but it's just, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's been, uh, 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 joyful to work with all, with all these great, great musicians. Uh, that record was, was nothing but joy from the beginning to the end. Uh, we actually reprised more of Stevie stuff than I had planned on doing. Yeah. But, uh, once, uh, Tommy and Chris and Kenny Wayne got up there, couldn't help it. You know, I was only going to do two, two Stevie songs. We ended up doing four. And, uh, and then the other songs uh, kind of sent out to guitar players and singers. And, uh, and they all did a terrific job. Warren and, and uh, um, uh, well, uh, uh, Sam Moore sang. And, uh, oh, yeah. and of Kev course, Kebbo came in. And, uh, and, uh, and it was great having the fantastic singers there, uh, uh, Jimmy Hall and Mike Ferris. And of course, uh, 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 oh, I forgot about, uh, Doyle who, who, who uh, Bonnie Bramlett. I mean, Vince Bonnie, sang on, on that tune. Yeah. yeah. So much. Everybody loves you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that was, that was, that was really a, a labor of love. And, uh, and I, I felt really great about it. Uh, uh um, I, I, I listen to it occasionally. It's been what about four years now, so uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, three year, three years or something. And uh, uh, you think about maybe we'll do another one one of these days. And we'll we see do. what happens. I we'll see we what do. happens. Right now, in the middle of the pandemic, you know, I'm happy to be doing anything at all. I think uh, uh, my 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 next session coming up is with uh, a homeless guy. <laughs> Friend of friend of our sax player, who uh, and uh, I don't even know his name. Paulie says yes, it's a homeless guy. I wrote songs with him. So, you want to do a couple? You want to play keyboards on it? I said, well, I don't. I guess so. Yeah. Send him over here. I'm not. It's not like I'm doing anything else. Which exactly. I'm doing nothing. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, Reese. Well, I mean, it's unbelievable all the things you've done. And like I said, I'm, I'm honored to be <laughs> your friend and to even be, you know, around you sometimes it freaks me out, but let's jump into my, my 10 questions. I've curated a, a little bit differently because there are no guitar questions in here as they know. All right. Let's, all right. I'm ready. Go ahead. Hit it. All right. Number one, when you were first playing piano learning, do you remember the first little piece of music lick hook that when you got it under your fingers, it lit the fire. Like, I can't believe I just figured this out and it sounds like music. You know, do you remember that, that moment? From when I first started playing the, the thing that lit, that lit the fire for me was well after I, I played, I, I'd started playing. And, uh, uh, as it was sitting down, reading the music for Moonlight Sonata for the first time. Yeah. And, uh, just, just playing, just playing that. It was that beautiful song. As far as when I first started playing, when they first started teaching kids play piano, you know, you learn stupid little nursery rhymes. And uh, yeah. no, I don't remember any of those things. 
from when I from when I was the one that when it came out and it sounded correct, it was like you know I can't. Oh yeah, oh I, I I played it during that afternoon. That that night I was in bed. I got up out. I can remember getting up out of bed, going down to downstairs to the piano, turning the light on, and just playing it again. Wow! Because I couldn't believe it. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, I can relate to that, of course. I remember the first time I figured out, uh, you know, B.B. King's intro to A Slow Blues, which was one of the first things I ever figured out, you know, and playing along to a record. Like, I would just want to play that over and over and over and over again. Yeah, just magical stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Do you remember ever... Okay, so then once you started listening to other music, you know, after the Jerry Lee concert explosion and and you know listening to other music do you remember the first rock and roll or, or blues type thing that you learned on piano huh i guess i do not <laughs> could have been anything you know could maybe chuck berry who knows you were you were so were you did you listen to johnny johnson a lot yeah, those Chuck Berry, those Chuck Berry records were fantastic, Amazing. and everybody right. talked about, uh, and nobody talked about the great piano playing on him. Everybody talked about how great Chuck was, but to me, the the way the piano was on there set all those songs up, man. It, oh, it was just anyway. So so yeah, they, it was huge influence on me. Yeah, it was great to meet him. I did a record with him. Yeah. I remember that record, and it was so deserving of that record at the time when it came out, and he finally started to get some of that shine that he greatly deserved. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very right. nice man. Was, was he? That's awesome. All right, number three. What's the first thing you play when you sit down at a piano without thinking? Does, do your hands just go somewhere automatically? I don't play anything in particular at first. I see where my fingers go. Uh, it doesn't matter what key it is, and I just uh, just uh, I will sit down and just start to improvise, and just just wherever they go. Uh, uh, um, sometimes I have something in mind, but for the most part, it's a total stream of consciousness. Yeah, wow, that's cool because it's like it's probably different, and and probably different between piano and organ, right? Too, where what happens and when you sit down. Yeah. It, 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 it's like that on piano. Organ is not like that. Mm -hmm. If I sit down to the organ, I'm going to play something like uh, "Whiter Shade of Pale" or uh, or uh, I'll play something like uh, 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 "Green Onions" or I play uh, uh, you know some deep purple thing or uh, uh, you know who I like uh, I like now is uh, the guy who played with uh, Pink Floyd. Richard Wright, you know, his, his organ, his organ stuff is really interesting to me. You know, I, I never really paid that much attention to him back in the day. I thought it was just kind of floaty, but the more I listened to it, the more I realized how, how important all those things that he did were. And uh, I've listened to him a little bit. It's amazing how the instrument changes things. Like for me, like say I get to the studio or to a gig and I flip standby on my amp, Part of the, you know, the first thing that comes out, yes, yeah, just whatever. But it's also like, you know, you're checking 
to make sure everything's working and the balance is good and your fret, you know, your intonation is good. So the organ is probably more like that because you've got to turn it on and get your sound together and check that. Right. As opposed to the piano, you just sit down and whatever comes out. Well, I think for me, the piano is more of a complete thing. The organ is kind of like a right-handed thing. I mean, I know for me anyway, I mean, I, 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 a lot of organ players sit down and it's complete with themselves, you know. They get the pedals, they get the left hand, they get the, the right hand. You know, they're all set with the organ. Yeah. I don't do, I don't play organ in a traditional style like that. So right. it's, it's sort of a, a right-hand centric sort of thing. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, all right, number four. What do you hear, like, in your head? What key, groove, style? What's the most prevalent thing that pops into your head when you're just sitting around, you know, cooking eggs or whatever? I've constantly got a shuffle going in my head. It just never goes away. You know, so much so, like, when I lay down to go to bed, I need to finish it. I'm always improving. But It never goes away. Do you have anything like that that's just always jumping in there? Oh, you know, uh, uh, we're all working on our songs at the, you know, any given songs that we're, we're writing at the, any given time and influenced by any soundtracks we're hearing from any TV shows and movies. Uh, last thing we heard on the radio, uh, uh, somebody suggested listening to this particular radio station, you hear some, some cool groove that you haven't heard in a while. And, uh, so for me, it's kind of like, the last thing I heard, yeah. you know, and, and I, and I, sometimes I actually see it written out on a staff and I, and I, and I, and I, and I just fill in the, fill in the, the melody, my, 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 uh, 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 made up melody to it around on the right hand and just see where we go. So, sometimes it's just, uh, you hear a thing. Some for me, it's sometimes like I see it as well as hear it interesting see that's something i've never i can read okay you know but i that's something i never look at when i listen to music i don't ever see it visually like that that's that's interesting to me yeah that's all those classical piano lessons i don't know i don't know uh uh, uh, uh i thought everybody did that <laughs> uh, number five when do you feel like as an improviser you started to find your voice. Do you remember moments of, you know, blowing and, and, and coming upon something that was like, this sounds more like me. I'm going to follow this left turn and go further that way. Because you have a really unique voice as an improviser, both on piano and on organ. Do you remember like consciously moments of, hey, this sounds like me? Well, uh, uh, you know, I, you think about... 50 years, a, a, a career that's 50 years long. And uh, of course, there's so many moments. Uh, remembering the first moments from back when you started. Uh, for me, when I, when I first started, I was in cover bands. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the moments were few and far between. Mm -hmm. And uh, I would, uh, in the, even you, you go up through the years, the Second Coming, which was a, a, a band that stretched things out a little bit. I wasn't a good player then, you know, I, I have to admit, I was, I was not the world's best at anything back then. Uh, um, so, when, but when I went out to California, started working with Boz, playing with that band, I felt like I had 
I had something to say with that music. And so that was a, the first time for me, uh, I, I felt like I was really adding something and saying, saying something unique. So that's uh, this, one of the songs we played was Sweet Release. Another one was uh, Loan Me a Dime. Uh, another one was, uh, 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 there were several other songs from back then. And I can recall playing them and saying, there's something something special about playing about me playing these songs. It just feels like you're now you have matured as a musician. Wow, yeah, it is. I mean, because I you're somebody who when I hear you not just backing up somebody, but when I hear you blowing taking a solo, I know immediately that's Reese. Like you know, I've heard so much of it in my life. I know your improvisational style. So you've you've arrived certainly at a personal voice on it. You know, I feel like I have I have a voice too, and and it's kind of developed. I don't I didn't I wasn't looking for it. It just oh. kind of all of a sudden there it is. Yeah. All right. Number six. What do you consider your biggest weakness as a keyboard player? Oh, my biggest weakness is is probably playing too much, not leaving enough holes in the music. <laughs> Uh, for uh, for other things to happen, um, I have a lot of weaknesses. Uh, I don't play uh, ballads particularly well. Um, I don't like playing in in the key of B very much. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so I, I have a lot. Of, I have a lot of weaknesses. Wow. <laughs> well. Yeah, we all we all are harder on ourselves than we you know than anybody else would ever be. Because <laughs> I don't see it that way. All right, number seven. If you were flying into a date, you know, a fly gig, and something gets messed up with the back line, and you can only have even either organ or piano, do you automatically have a split second decision of oh, it's got to be one or the other, or is it dependent on the gig? No, it depends on it depends on the on the gig on the on who the artist is. Uh, that happened in a Gary Nicholson gig, uh, and I only had piano, and I it didn't work out well at all. I said, "No, for this gig, I, I needed the organ, but the organ could not it would not get tuned up to pitch because we had a, a bad generator, and sometimes the organ and and uh, uh, portable generators don't go very well together." Yeah, man. So it's a hundred percent dependent on gig. So, like, if you flew in somewhere with Stevie back in the day overseas, would you have been the other way? You would have wanted the, the organ first and foremost on that gig. Absolutely, and for the most part, it's it's the organ. You know, uh, uh, if I have organ and piano, most gigs it's more organ than piano. Gotcha. Uh, with a, a rock and roll band, I would uh, uh, like the Prowlers. Uh, the piano was perfect for that, and so you know. Uh, I don't work with that many rock and roll bands, so not anymore. All right. All right. I figured that would be the answer. All right. Number eight. Was Stevie really that loud? Like, was it, you're on the other side of the stage, but was it really from, from my, you know, the outsider's point of view, was it, was it as loud as I know it probably was? At the, at the time, it seemed like the loudest thing I'd ever heard. I have to tell you the truth, though. I'll tell you something. After working with, People like Joe Bonamassa 
and uh, Jimmy Barnes and uh, and uh, uh, Kenny Wayne Shepherd. Uh, no, it wasn't that loud. It was it was fine. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I wonder if you have like your ears have been tuned to eliminate guitar frequencies in a way that allows you to just handle loud ass guitar because you've been around it so much it's crazy um I, i've been lucky with my ears i have a, a a very minor uh dip in the low mids on my left side uh which I, after 50 years i figure i figure that's that's acceptable <laughs> yeah, yeah absolutely also you, you talked about playing in b earlier but just in general do you are you happy not to have to play in e flat as much anymore I love E flat. <laughs> yeah. And I'll tell you something, I play different licks when I'm playing in different keys. And the, the stuff that I play, that I used to play in E flat, I don't get to play that anymore. So it's like an old friend that I miss. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, you played so, I mean, so many flat keys all the time like that. It probably made you a better musician, I would think. Oh, it did make me a musician. And, and Stevie loved tuning the guitar down. And I only cheated once. You know, I cheated on, uh, uh, I have to admit to cheating on a song called uh, 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 Don't, uh, the, when the, when the, uh, uh, what was that song? Don't Come, don't come a, a, a Rocket. When they, the, 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 the first, The House is Rocket. I cheated on that song. You played that to so that, NC? That song was in uh, was in B, yeah. And I and I uh, I recorded it on a digital piano and modulated it to C. <laughs> well, they're playing it in C. I mean, to them. Well, I know they are, but it, but <laughs> but I always I didn't modulate anything else. Just that one song. That's amazing. I see. I didn't know that. That's great and piece of information right there. Oh well, that also led 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 to several. Uh, uh, unusual moments because that was the first song of our set and then he would go right into another song right after that which a lot of times did not leave me really time to, to unmodulate the, the piano so i would find myself playing the organ in one key and the piano in a different key ah. and uh and uh so that was the the mind bender tricks going on there uh, uh sometimes you have to do it and so that was a challenge too I've been there before with a key. I, I've been there with a keyboard player who did rely on transpose much more than he should have, and who had many of those moments on stage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, crazy. All right, number nine. What keeps you at this point, after all you've done, motivated not just to keep doing it, but to continue to try to better yourself as a musician, like and to listen to new things and keep growing, because that's something that interests me as I you know, get older, how am I keeping myself pushing forward and growing? What does it for you? Well, uh, motivation is an interesting thing to talk about. I'm actually having a little issue with motivation uh, during the uh, pandemic here uh, with, uh, with a lot of, with, uh, you know, thousands of us musicians with uh, uh, very limited uh, prospects and uh, uh, long-term unemployment. It's, it's tough for us right now. It's hard to stay motivated. Um, so what's what the thing that's getting me going right now is writing songs, writing music, trying to, you know, and, uh, and so 
I'm, I'm basically entertaining myself, you know, and I'm, and I'm trying to, trying to come up with unique ideas. Yeah. And so, uh, I feel like I could do, if I could do that, then I could, I could try to outlast this pandemic. And at the same time, I'll have some interesting, uh, uh, I'll have some interesting music to play. And uh, so, so tr trying to improve as a writer is the main motivation right now. Wow. Well, that's, see, that's inspiring to me from afar because, you know, you've had this whole career as a, as a player, you know, doing everything you could possibly do in the business. And now you're spending time, you know, writing songs. So hopefully that means we, the new record is soon and we'll be ready. I hope so too, Josh. I hope so too. Dude, Reese, thank you for doing this, man. This is like a pleasure to speak to you. I, I just, I'm so grateful you took the time out of your day. Uh, man, it's just a pleasure talking to you, Josh. I look forward to uh, seeing you in person one of these days again. And uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. maybe we'll uh, get together uh, in a couple of months for the for Joe's next project. We'll see what happens. I Take care so, of yourself, man. man. Thank you, Reese. Thank you, man. A pleasure, as always. All right. Bye, Reese. Bye. Bye.